Samaritan woman at the well. But first, we have this little excursus where Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, at first glance, what does this look like is happening at the same time? Okay, baptism with water versus baptism of the Spirit, perhaps. Just thinking of the people involved, what looks like is happening at the same time? Jesus and John are both baptizing. It appears that there's a parallel ministry going on. Now, why would this be confusing? Does anyone... Look at John 4, verse 2. We're skipping ahead just a little bit. It's on the sheet if you have the handout. What does John 4, verse 2 say? Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Two verses within what? Maybe 15 verses of one another that seem to say completely opposite things. So the very first thing we have to do this morning is work out that tension. What is actually going on here at the end of John chapter 3 in John uh, 3.22? And there are two kind of key, I guess, options that most commentators settle upon in one of two camps. Either one, yes, there was a time period in which Jesus was doing a parallel ministry with John, and then there was a time period in which Jesus was not and was instead instructing his disciples as John 4, 2 says, and there's two separate time periods going on. Or, and this is where I would, I think, tend to lean personally, if you were to press me on it, um, Jesus was overseeing his disciples baptizing uh, in the same manner that John was baptizing. So John was baptizing, but so too were Jesus' disciples with his oversight. Because ultimately, who, is bap- who baptizes someone? God. Right? God is the one who is at work. Yes, through the hands of his servant, um, but it is ultimately not about the individual who does the baptism, but rather the God who works through baptism. <laughs> My daughter wanders off into little lambs. Uh, two and a half, is, or two and, I guess, a quarter is a fun age, I'll say. Um, so when you think about it, on a Sunday morning when we have a baptism, Who is at work? God. Very good. What are we tempted to think is at work? I heard it, I think. Yeah, it's the pastor, right? It's one of the gotcha questions I I try to uh, use in confirmation. I say, oh, who baptized you? You And I'll say, oh, Pastor Smith or, you know, Pastor Sieben or Pastor Thomas or Pastor so-and-so at a different church. Um, and I always say, wrong. You guys are, no, I, I had pictures. I can tell you that's who baptized me. It's like, no, it is God who baptizes through the hands of his servants. It's why if you look at our hymnal, I don't know if you know this, at the back of our hymnal, we have a right for emergency baptism. That any Christian can baptize. Uh, why do we have a pastor do it? Because it is uh, the public office of the pastoral ministry, the office of word and sacrament. But in an emergency, anyone can baptize, any Christian can baptize because it's not about the individual doing the baptism, but the God who works through baptism. And we're going to see John have a very faithful confession and understanding of this in just a minute. Uh, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. 
Now, that seems a little odd, doesn't it? Um, because presumably, who were John's disciples? Yeah, uh, presumably, there are at least some that were Jewish, but I think here what you see is um, one who had not, the differentiation between one who had been baptized by John and was, his disciple, was a disciple of John, a follower at that time of John, and one who had not yet um, been baptized. And they came, they came across, uh, wait, and they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. Now, what issue seems to be happening, in, at least in the mind of John's disciples here? Okay, it depends on who's doing the baptizing. But on, on a, just a logistical level, what are they, what are they kind of worried about? Losing their job. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um, in a sense, John, we're following you, but look, everyone seems to be going over to this Jesus guy. And that seems to be a problem for those disciples of John. And so John answers them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Uh, this whole section here, and we're, we're going to, actually, you know what, I'll read the rest of it. Um, through verse 30. And I want us to stop and think about this for a moment because I think it's one section of John that maybe we don't always focus on that is super applicable to even our day-to-day life and how we remember our Christian walk with God. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, what is John talking about specifically here? His own ministry, right? But how does this sort of attitude crop up in our day-to-day lives? Yeah, Jim. Yes. We have to, yeah. Take not only the stage, but the credit, right? So easy uh, it is for us to say something like, well, look, everyone's just going over maybe to this church over there because they have lights or this or that, or that's not really a, a good reason. Or so easy it is for us to say, well, we had this same ministry for years and I don't want to see us do something different because that could take away from this thing that worked really well 25 years ago. Or even, um, you know, we can become uncomfortable when things start to change around us because it, it knocks off the, the stability that we had grown accustomed and comfortable to. Essentially, that's what John's disciples are saying. Hey, I thought we had this worked out, and now they seem to be following Jesus. So easy it is for us at times to want to increase what we want instead of where the Lord is actually increasing. It is an extremely faithful witness that John gives that uh, I must decrease. I think it's one of the hardest things for us as humans, as we walk in faith, to fully embrace. I must decrease. 
so that God in his work can increase. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Now, when you think about the composition of John's gospel, why does this excursus happen right here? What has Jesus just said to Nicodemus? Whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. What is John essentially saying? My testimony is true. What I have done has been carried out in God. And that is why I know I must decrease. If you turn just a few pages back to John chapter 1, what do we read um, John described as? And this is the testimony of John. When they ask, who are you? He said, I am not the Christ. Who are you? We need to give an answer, they said. I am the voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to tie. If you go even further back to the beginning of John, we read that he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. That he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. In a way, these little verses at the end of John chapter 3 kind of point us back to the very beginning of John, but summarize, it's kind of a capstone on John's own ministry. That his inclusion in the Gospel of John, remember, Gospel of John written by John the Evangelist, not John the Baptist. um, His inclusion there is to point out that he came to bear witness about the light of Christ. How many times do you think John appears in this gospel after uh, verse 30? Zero. This is essentially the end of his ministry in this gospel. And so it's, I think it's really neat the way he ends it, right? He starts out in John's gospel by saying, I came to bear witness, and now I've borne witness, and I must Decrease. Um, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now what does that sound like? Go back about 14 verses. John 3, 16 and 17, right? Essentially, it's just another restatement of that, what Jesus says to Nicodemus. That these aren't words to just Nicodemus, but they're words to anyone. And now we're going to see just how far those words can stretch. Because Jesus is about to basically have the same conversation he had with Nicodemus, in a way, with someone that his followers would never believe could be included in that promise of eternal life. 
In a lot of ways, I said last week, Nicodemus, uh, it would make sense that the Savior came for Nicodemus in the minds of the Jewish people. He was well thought of, a, a leader amongst the people. But now we get into John 4 and we read that the Savior comes for people that the, the Jewish people would think God would want nothing to do with. Um, but before we open with John 4 verse 1, do I have any questions on that last little bit of John 3? All right, Dennis. Uh. <laughs> um, something you just said about that children, children made me think again. You know, a child doesn't hear the gospel. I'm talking an infant, rather. Okay, well, what do they do? They don't take holy communion. <laughs> they don't read scripture. Okay. But they're still baptized. Yes. Um, I was going to say, I, I believe firmly that children not only hear the gospel, but God works faith in their hearts. Um, in a lot of ways, it go back to what Jesus says, you know, whoever does not believe like a little child. I tell you what, when, when my daughter says her bedtime prayers, um, she has no doubt in her mind that God loves her. And in fact, we always end all our prayers in our household with, yea, God. Um, you can judge that, think it's weird, but she's genuinely so ecstatic to be able to pray. Now, sometimes that's because she's really hungry, and that means food's right around the corner, <laughs> right? But there's also that reality that when you have a little child believes in ways that are almost stronger than an adult. Uh, their faith is in a lot of ways stronger than that of an adult. Think about when you were uh, three or four uh, and Christmas came around right? Or Easter came around. Did you have any trouble believing that Jesus came to this world, laid in a manger, rose from the dead? No. When, did the, when do those things start getting questioned in our minds? As the world increases, yeah. As our understanding of the world increases. Yes, Jen. Yes. yes. And so it works faith without understanding. Yes. That's why you want people to read the Bible even if it's first of the day. Even if it's something you read in the grocery line. Yeah. You know, something because the word is The word is active and living, and I would say even as adults, we don't fully understand it. Right? I mean, if I were to say to you, do you believe in the Trinity? I hope you would all say, all right, explain it to me then. Right? Um, do you believe in the full divinity and humanity of Jesus? All right, explain it to me quickly, right? There's some aspects of it that we believe without fully understanding because God, his wisdom is above any wisdom that we'll ever have. His ways are not our ways, and sometimes his ways are ununderstandable for us feeble humans. And quite frankly, I take a lot of comfort in believing in a God who is far wiser and far greater than my own conceptions of what can be. Yeah. All right, bud. I just commented about the fact that John is introducing the terminology about the bride and the bride. Yes. 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 And so when he says, you know, the friend rejoices, what is he saying? The friend doesn't serve in that position for the friend's sake, but for the bridegroom's sake, for the groom's sake. 
Um, if you've ever been a best man in a wedding, it wasn't, that wedding didn't occur so that you could be best man, right? And it's the same thing that John's saying here. Uh, I'm the friend. I'm not, you know, the bridegroom. I hear the voice, and you're right. This is, again, language we'll see Jesus use later on. All right. Oh, another comment? Yes. Yes. Correct. That faith is a, is a gift and that it's not about us understanding everything. And I sometimes talk about this in our new members class too. If you're like, I, I want to get to that point where I understand everything in the Bible. Uh, you're, you're not going to get there. That doesn't mean you can't know all the words theoretically in the Bible. You could theoretically memorize the entire scriptures, but to truly uh, know the depth of that um, is something that is beyond our human capabilities. How God is working. I mean, God says that. Yes. Yes. All right, Dr. Bender. The baptizing that Jesus' disciples were doing, was that John's baptism of repentance? So that is a great debate, isn't it? What, is this baptism different or the same? I would fall under it is the same as John's at that time because the baptism that he instructs his disciples to enact, um, for example, in the Great Commission or at, is a post-resurrection understanding and, and how we hear baptism sp spoken of in the New Testament post-resurrection. It connects us to Christ what? His death and resurrection. I mean, look at Romans 6, right? So, uh, but there is a lot uh, of debate amongst what exactly the nature of that is. And again, a lot of debate about, well, was Jesus the one, was Jesus baptizing or was his disciples the one, were the ones baptizing? I, you know, at, at some point we have to acknowledge that scripture says both 4 verse 2 and 3 verse, was it 23? Um, and we can look at how to resolve that, but I don't think it necessarily changes any fundamental aspect of our, our faith. Yeah. And so that's where the debate comes is, okay, so when we read of Jesus' disciples doing that, is that the same as John's? Or was this, I guess, a, a pre-screening of what was to come, an early admission sort of thing? And I'd say it, it's connected to John's. But, um, all right. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Correct. You have a baptism of. I mean, yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, shall we get to the Samaritan woman? I think this is one of the neatest actually accounts, and it shows the depth of not only God's love, but uh, it also shows Jesus's dry humor at times as well. Um, now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, and we covered that in length, um, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. 
and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, why would you say he had to pass through Samaria? Geographically, where's Galilee? North, Judea, south, what's in the middle? Samaria. So, theoretically, or at first glance, I should say, at first glance, it looks pretty natural that someone would say, well, he had to go through Samaria to get there. Except for the fact that the Jewish people were so opposed to the Samaritans, the, the, the feud between them had gotten so strong that they actually built a road on the east side of the Jordan River so you could go around Samaria to get into Galilee. No one going to Galilee would have been expected to go through Samaria from Judea to get there. You would want to have avoided it altogether. And so when we read that it is necessary, and that's the word in Greek, it is necessary that he had to pass through Samaria, in the minds of the first century hearers, they'd be realizing something different's going on here because it's not necessary. We circumvented that. There's ways around that. And yet we read Jesus say that it is necessary that he had to go, or John say, I should say, that it was necessary for Jesus to go through Samaria. Yes, Ruth. Yes, and we're going to get into that in just a moment. Uh, more than just a goal, maybe a person in mind. Yeah, and, and we'll see people in mind. Uh, so he had to pass through Samaria. And again, this is to fulfill his mission. As you mentioned, Ruth, he has a goal here. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now last time we saw Jesus have a conversation with someone, when was it? And Nicodemus, at night, yeah. I prepped you for this question. The very next time in John's gospel we see him have a conversation with someone, when's it going to be? What's the sixth hour? Not 6 a.m., noon. You're exactly right, about noon, right? Um, we talked last week about the contrast between light and darkness, and just, we'll keep reading, but just keep that contrast in your mind as we go throughout John 4. Um, oh, and one thing I wanted to note, too, do you notice, how does it describe Jesus in verse 6? I've made a little note here. I thought this was, you know, a good reminder of his humanity. Yeah, he got tired. He had been walking for a while and got tired. Um, Woman from Samaria came to draw, draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a, wo a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So right away, the woman recognizes this is odd. On two, two accounts, really. Not only is she from Samaria, but she's a woman. A self-respecting person who followed Jewish customs would not address a woman in the middle of the day and certainly would have nothing to do with a Samaritan. Uh, there's been some commentators who have even said that there were certain regulations against even speaking to your own wife in the middle of the day. Out in public, I should say, not in, in a household, but out in public like this. And so she right away picks up on this is weird. This is out of the norm. Um, this is different. And then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is 
saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, I kind of chuckled at this because we use this phrase, you know, gift of God when we're describing a person almost pejoratively these days. Oh, they think they must be God's gift to this, right? Or what? Do you think you're God's gift to you know, this over here? We don't necessarily uh, use it literally. We almost use it a- as a way to say you're thinking way too highly of yourself. But how does Jesus describe himself? Yeah, in a sense, she could, be, she could be asking him, what, do you think you're God's gift to the world or something, Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> yes. If you knew this gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this language of living water calls back to several places in the Old Testament, including Jeremiah 2, where, where the Lord refers to himself and being connected with him as being part of a fountain of living water. In fact, in Jeremiah 2, it's one of the, the oracles Jeremiah has to give against the people of Israel is you have forsaken the Lord, who is the living fountain, living water, for cisterns that you built or for broken cisterns. Um, and so Jesus says to her, I would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, quite naturally, this seems, again, odd, right? We said last week, what is Nicodemus' response when Jesus says, talk to him about being born of water and of the Spirit and being born again? How does he respond? How can these things be? How is this possible? What does the woman respond here? Jesus just told her he'd give her a drink of water that you will never thirst again. Is that our normal experience? Everyone who just had water at at fellowship breakfast or coffee, you will be thirsty again, right? So does she ask him, well, how is this possible? No, what does she say to him? Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Instead of asking, well, how is that going to happen? She says, give it to me then, sir. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered, I have no husband. Now, we're going to see in just a moment, what is Jesus doing by setting her up in this way? He's about to highlight just how strong his gift is in the heart of a very... um, hurt, and possibly sinful person. We're going to get into that when she has her statement about, um, I have no husband, and then Jesus' response. What, what does that mean? There's a couple of options, but either way, she's either a woman who has been um, very sinful or had a lot of deep hurt, uh, had a lot of pain. So the woman answered him, I have no husband, and Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. You have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
Now, if you go and look up, you don't need to do it now, uh, 1 John 4, 16 and 17, it's one of the verses that is most often picked for a wedding. And I always stop when I get to this section here of the Gospel of John and remind people, make sure you know it's 1 John 4, 16 and 17, uh, because I was told a story at the seminary of a, a person, a family member at a wedding, who went to bring the reading and he printed it out, you know, and he goes there and, and didn't check what he had printed out. And sure enough, he printed out John 4, 16, I think through 19 or something like that. Um, and, and instead of reading, you know, uh, a very lovely passage about the, the power of love, you know, the man got up and said, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands. <laughs> what you have said is true. <laughs> and the woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. <laughs> uh, so that's my one little friendly reminder. Always make sure you double check whether it's 1 John or the Gospel of John. Because you never want to be in that situation yourself. Um, so the woman says, or Jesus says to her, you've had five husbands. Now this can be one of a couple things. I want to be careful. I don't want to just jump to, well, she must have been an adulterous woman. I think that's sometimes where it's taken. That's not necessarily said here. Um, now, she also would not have been the one doing the divorcing. In those days, it was not a woman's right to just divorce her husband. Who would have to initiate the divorce? Husband. So the two possibilities are, yes, she was doing things uh, that were, gave the husband a right to divorce, or her husband's did what? Died. Either way, this is a woman who's experienced great pain and hurt. This is a woman who has had a really hard time in life. Uh, a woman who really, quite frankly, doesn't have much prospect for the future. And even whoever she is with now, has not married her, has no legal right to protect her or provide for her. This is a, a, a woman who is not in a good standing. Yes, Ruth. She came at noon, and nobody else was there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that she was not held in highest. She came when other people were there, and she was not accepted. You could infer that. Um, it doesn't directly say that, you know, that's where you got to be careful. And that's why I wanted to make the comment about it, it doesn't necessarily mean she had been adulterous, because I've heard that, um, that people say, well, that must mean she, she had been adulterous, and that's why the husband's kept divorcing. We don't know. We don't, we, don't, we don't, it could be that she married some of the, you know, five really bad guys. Uh, either which way, the bottom line is, this is a woman who knew great hurt, great pain, and at that moment was not in a good standing in society. She is the polar opposite of Nicodemus. Nicodemus is held in great standing in society, is probably fairly wealthy. As we see at the end of the Gospel, end of, the gospel of John when he brings all those spices, he was able to procure those pretty easily. He is well thought of. He has positions of authority. When does he come to Jesus? At night. This woman has nothing. She's had a hard life, had probably moments of great despair and pain, and certainly is thought of by, by the Jewish peoples as utterly worthless because she's a, a Samaritan. And the blood feud and the, the uh, centuries of bad blood that had been between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Um, and yet, where does Jesus find her? When does Jesus come to her? In the middle of the day, in broad daylight for all people to see. 
for all people. And you'll see the disciples, they get kind of confused by this. Sir, I perceive you are a prophet, and our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now, this was a big point of contention between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. They believed that uh, Mount Gerizim uh, was the holy mountain, not the Temple Mount, and so they worshipped on that mountain. They literally argued about which mountain we ought to worship on. Um, That was one of the big points of contention. And so when Jesus says these things to her, she's even more confused because she perceives that he is at least knowledgeable, given some sort of insight from God, and she kind of questions, why are you coming to me? We don't worship in the right spot. If you are from God, if you are this gift of God, you would know that your people say we're not right, that we don't have a standing in God's family, that we don't have a standing in God's house, that we don't have an understanding of what God wants us to do in worship of him. And I love Jesus' response, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here where the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I love verse 20, uh, the end of verse 23. Who is Jesus coming for? Who is the Father seeking? Not a specific ethnicity, not a specific location, but people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Um, this little 23 verses, 24 verses, uh, would have been seen as extremely unusual in the Jewish population. This is not how it's supposed to work. This is not even how we're supposed to talk about worshiping God. You notice what's not mentioned there? What's something that the the Jews held in high high esteem when it came to the worship of God? There's a commandment. The Sabbath. He doesn't mention here, you will worship on the Sabbath day in spirit and in truth. Um. The temple's not mentioned. A physical location's not mentioned. Purification isn't necessarily mentioned. Just that the Father is seeking people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who you has called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Every now and again, you'll hear someone say, well, does Jesus ever, you know, directly say he's the Christ? The answer is yes, right? And this is one of those great examples of that. Here he reveals, not to Nicodemus, but to the Samaritan woman. It shows so well how, um, what the, the true spirit of love that God comes to this world with. That he didn't just come for those well thought of, but he reveals himself to be the Messiah, the Christ, the very lowest in society. To anyone who is willing to believe. 
And that's why I think this is beautiful to connect back to that John 3 uh, dialogue with Nicodemus because it, it almost serves as the complete foil, these two conversations to one another. Here the person who's supposed to know all these things can't figure them out. How can these things be? And here this woman who really would be considered nothing in the minds of, of the Jewish people, she not only has a confession of faith, but to her, Jesus reveals he is the Christ. And she doesn't wonder how these things are. She says, give it to me. I desire this living water. All right, I'll open it up to questions before we continue with then the disciples' response to this. Yeah, Jim. So uh, this confuses me about who the Samaritans actually are. Okay. Are they Jews? Basically, outcast Jews? I mean, they're Jacob, their father. Yeah. Yeah. This is a good good question. question. Who are the Samaritans? Um, So a couple of things. There was at least some remnant of a Jewish population when the Jews get carried off into captivity. In those centuries, or in that time period of of captivity, um, that remnant not only existed, but there were intermarriages. Um, You heard what I said earlier about they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. And so when the Jewish people came back, there essentially it was the Hatfields and the McCoys because the Jewish people didn't see them as, you know, I hesitate to use this term because I don't want to get in, you know, it, but kind of as a, the Jews saw themselves as a pure race and the Samaritans were not, um, that they didn't have a right understanding of God and so they were uh, not God's people. They had different understandings about where to worship. Um, they actually, they're still Samaritans today. I think there's only a couple hundred left, but they still hold a Passover festival on Mount Gerizim. But the, over the centuries, as the Jewish people came back into Judea, the feud became, I mean, just tremendous to the point where uh, you would not go around saying nice things about Samaritans. You would build roads, like I said earlier, to actually avoid the, the area altogether. I mean, imagine that. The quickest way to get between two points is a straight line. That has not changed. So to build a road that makes a curve, goes across the river, then goes up on the other side of the river, and then comes back, uh, you have to be pretty motivated to avoid what lies in between there. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Jan. Robert. Yes. So they still, they felt like, I want to be clear, the Jewish people saw them as that. They felt like they were worshiping in purity. And this is where the, the, this is where the conflict happens, right? When someone says, no, this is the way we believe God is calling us to be. Uh, and someone else says, no, this is what we believe God is calling us to be. And those things are not compatible or not um, the same. What tends to happen? Separation. And, you know, think back to, well, we call ourselves a Lutheran church. Why? Luther said, no, I I read the scriptures, and this is what I see it saying. And the Catholic church said, no, we refuse to to say that. We refuse to go along with that. And there's a divide. Uh, There were wars fought over that sort of division, right? So you can imagine that the sort of hostility that gets built up when you're in such close proximity to one another, and you're both saying you're right. 
Yeah, right. Just a follow-up question, Jim. The northern and the southern Well, so, so if you look at it, um, if you, I, I should have, maybe I'll have a map printed for next time because we could have used it last time too. Um, if you look at it, uh, Galilee, where he's going, is above Samaria. Judea is below Samaria, and Samaria kind of exists in between on the western side of the Jordan River. So if you, you, if you have a study Bible that has, oh, you have one? Lance, can I borrow this real quick? Here, this is going to go great on radio. Whoops, sorry. So Galilee's up here, Judea's here, in between, and there's Sychar right there, is Samaria. The road would have gone across the Jordan there, gone up, and then crossed back over. Um, yeah, sorry, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's sometimes easier when you have a diagram. <laughs> yeah. Not only did they have to build a road to avoid Samaria, they had to build two bridges. Well, yeah, to get over the river. Or at least some navigable, whether you know, it could be a boat or something, too. Um, but yeah, it, it, I mean, they were motivated to avoid one another. They did not like, I mean, we, we all know this sort of thing, countries that don't like one another um, for whatever reason. Sometimes they don't even know the reason, right? I, I mean, I guess you could, it would be like if the USSR was Canada in 1978, right? And, or maybe even better, the USSR was located in Mexico and we had to try and get to uh, South America, we probably want to go right through the heart of it, right? Now, today, I don't know if we have necessarily a, a physical, geographical um, dispute quite like we, we did in the Cold War. But, you know, you guys, right, yeah. All right, any other quick questions on Samaritans? The woman? All right, let's get to the disciples' response. Just then... <laughs> Perfect timing, right? Just then, the disciples came back, and they marveled he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, come see, uh, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. So what does this woman say when she goes back in, into town? How does she drum up, I guess you could say, excitement? She says, listen, you all know who I am, essentially. This man I never met, he could tell me everything that had happened, not just the good stuff. I, I just think it's interesting when you think about how that conversation had to have gone, you know. Yeah. Hi, Susie. You got to come see this guy. He told me about all five of my ex-husbands. And called me out for currently not the living with the man who's not my husband. I mean, it would have been a bizarre sort of thing, but not the sort of, it would have been the sort of thing you would take note of. And so they do. But we're going to get to that in just a second. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Now, what is that food? We're going to look at verse 34, but just think about it in a practical sense first. Who was that food, quite literally? Ruth, you said at the very beginning, why did he have to go through Samaria? He had a goal. And where he received in verse 34, he said, my food is to do the will of him 
who sent me to accomplish his work. But, so we'll start at 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And so the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Do not, yet, do not say, there are yet four months, then comes harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Um, what is Jesus saying to the disciples here? One, when I say something, you've got to maybe ask what I mean by that. I always laugh at their response. Hey, did someone bring them food? Uh, in verse 33, they keep things sometimes so literal, right? Uh, which I, I don't blame them for. I think most of us would be like, that's kind of a confusing thing. But then what is Jesus saying about ministry? And this goes back all the way back to what John was saying to his disciples. What is Jesus doing there? Mission work. He is sowing. That's the language he uses. He is sowing, um, and we're going to, you know, we see in other gospels the parable of the sower. But he is sowing the work of his father. And so when it says that uh, you do not, uh, others have labored, and you have entered into their labor, what is he saying? He's saying you're going to go out. And you're going to reap, but I am the sower. And so you see this Samaritan woman is going to bring all her friends, and we're just about, eh, we got five more minutes, all right, we can get to the friends. Uh, That many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He has been doing the work of his father. And then the woman goes and spreads it out, and many believe because of her testimony. He told me all I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. This is one of the most incredible sections in any of the Gospels. Where is one of the very first mission fields that Jesus goes and brings God's word to the people so that they believe in him as the Christ? Samaria. The very place the Jewish people would have said is the last place on earth they wanted God to go. Think about some of the other uh, accounts in, in the Gospels where they get upset. You know, the Pharisees and the scribes, why are they upset in Luke 15? Because he's talking and eating with what? Tax collectors and sinners. Think about Zacchaeus. Think about all the people that society says should be hated. And where does Jesus go? Directly to them. And this Samaritan woman at the well is another example of this. And not just her, but the many of that town who believed. And so when you think about this account, and then you think about what's just happened with Nicodemus, you see the stark contrast in how God 
operates versus what the people, in those days, the Jewish people thought he was going to do. The people who seemingly know the most understand the least. The people who should be thought of the least are given the most. Uh, I don't know, I think that's pretty profound when you, when you think about what that means for us in our life and how we treat people and go about things um, and what we remember as we uh, go throughout this life of who God came to. It's so easy to, for it to just remain the people that we're comfortable with. Um, but in every sense, John 4 is all about the people that your everyday Jewish individual would have been completely uncomfortable with. Yes, Dave. Yes. Oh, and, and I mean, and what did they say they heard for themselves? That he is indeed what? Not just the Messiah, but the, the Savior of the world. It's really, I don't know, it kind of gives me chills a little bit when you think about how this account came to be. And the, the word at the beginning, it was necessary. Jesus had to go through Samaria because it shows us that God's love is for all people, um, that God doesn't come to us uh, based on how well our circumstances are going, but comes to us in, in love. Uh, so when the Samaritans came to him and they stayed there two days, many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. We have heard ourselves and we know that it is indeed the savior of the world. Pretty powerful thing. All right. Are there any last questions before we wrap up for the day? And then we'll pick back up with him getting into Galilee um, and then kind of an interesting note about him going back to Cana for a second time in John's gospel. That's for next week. Going once, going twice. All right, we'll close with a, a word of prayer. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, as we've seen uh, today in, in John 3 and 4, we are reminded that we must decrease in this world, that we must be humble enough to allow your work to increase. That as you have called us to many different areas, different people, different stations of life. It is truly the work of your son, Jesus Christ, uh, that we rely on. It is that that we proclaim not ourselves, not our upbringing, and not our own abilities, but the great love that you have for us. I pray that you would continue to keep us in that love, give us that peace that goes beyond understanding, so that all we do, we may serve your holy name. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.